Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. In this episode, I have a conversation with one of my professors, a philosopher at UW-Madison, Russ Schaefer Mandau. We talk through some of the questions that my students raised about moral realism and moral nihilism. If you're one of my students, welcome back to the show. And whoever you are, I hope you stick around for more. everybody. Today I have a special guest joining me for the podcast. We're going to be talking with Russ Schaefer-Landau, who is a professor of philosophy at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. If you're one of my students, you should be familiar with that name. We've already read some of Russ's stuff for class. If you recall back to our unit on moral relativism, we read a portion of Russ's book, um, on ethics, and in particular, we looked at his chapter on moral relativism, which generated a lot of really fascinating conversation. Today, we're going to go in a different direction. We just spent a week thinking about moral realism, and we can define that in a second. But there were so many unanswered questions, as you can imagine, a week doesn't give us enough time to investigate these questions as much as we want. So I decided that uh, we would have Russ, come on and talk to us about moral realism. Russ has spent almost all of his career thinking about these sorts of issues. He does work in ethics and in particular meta-ethics. Meta-ethics is the branch of philosophy that sort of zooms out, kind of zooms out from morality and asks, where, where did this all come from and where does this get its authority? Are there any moral facts at all? And so while a lot of people are debating what the moral facts are and how we should live and how we should think about abortion and poverty and so on, those who, who do work in metaethics zoom out and kind of have a conversation about morality itself. So Russ, thanks for joining us today. Happy to be here, Joel. So what I did is I sent a poll out to my students to get them asking questions that they still have about moral realism, about moral nihilism. We also spent some time talking about uh, fictionalism and abolitionism, which we'll get to in a second. So here's a, a burning question that my students have for you is probably the most popular question that they wanted to ask you. And simply it is this, why are you a moral realist? And would you be willing to define moral realism for us as the, at least the version you defend? Yeah, so the version I defend uh, is says that there are moral facts, and these facts are not made true by anyone's attitudes towards them, and that includes any one person or any group of folks or even God. So some moral facts, I think of those as the fundamental moral facts, the ones that aren't themselves explained by any other moral fact. Sort of basic, think about basic principles like Kant's principle of universalizability or the principle of utility or the golden rule, whatever you think is the basic moral principle. I think that that has a special status, namely it's objective in this very strong sense. Namely, it's correct, but not because anyone thinks it is or anyone likes it, anyone endorses it. 
Why am I a moral realist? Well, the alternatives are, aren't very uh, good ones to me, <laughs> but I think that moral realism helps to capture something that a lot of us feel about morality and hope is true of morality, namely that it's not only objective in the way I just described, but it's also authoritative. Morality should uh, should be guiding us. We should be taking it seriously. We owe it our allegiance. And realism uh, seems to me to be best suited among all the alternatives for, uh, for making sense of that dimension of morality. I guess the dual dimension that is both objective and authoritative. Yeah, that's really help helpful. I can imagine someone asking a follow-up question like, well, why why does moral realism do the best job of making sense of the objective and authoritative nature of morality? Um, in class, I, I talked about the authority of morality as, as morality having clout. And I know that there are philosophers like Richard Joyce who use this, this concept. And I just, I wonder if students might respond by saying, um, you know, the non, the non-realists, the nihilists can kind of make sense of our, the authority of morality that, um, why shouldn't we do certain bad things is because uh, those bad things will cause damage. They'll undermine things we care about. It'll sow chaos into society. And um, why isn't that a good explanation for the authority of morality? Well, what's so bad about sowing chaos? <laughs> what, um, the realist has an answer to that question. There's something objectively bad about that. If you're a nihilist, you can't say, oh, it's morally bad. You can say, well, it doesn't work for me. I don't like it. But then, of course, you might have some folks, the sowers of chaos, for instance, who are totally happy doing that. And if and if moral nihilism is true, you've got no basis for issuing a moral criticism of that. Now, I'm not, you know, a pie, I'm not an ivory. Well, I'm sort of an ivory tower philosopher, but I'm not so head in the clouds that I think that just because a moral criticism is issued, people are going to change their, you know, change their minds or change their behavior. I don't think philosophical arguments are typically that powerful. And most people who are the sowers of chaos don't pay any attention to philosophy at all. They just pay, they're just people of bad faith attending to their own self-interest, at least as they perceive it to be. But nevertheless, I, you know, I think that if you're a moral nihilist, you've got no basis whatever for uh, explaining the authority of morality. Imagine uh, the analogy I find helpful, nihilism is to morality as atheism is to religion. And they both, both the nihilist and the atheist think that these institutions, these bodies of thinking are founded on a deep error. But if you're an atheist, you're not going to be in a position to explain divine authority. <laughs> you're going to think that there is no, there is no such thing. And if you're a moral nihilist, you're not in a position to explain moral authority, you're going to say, no, there just isn't any such thing. People think there is, but that's a, that's the basic mistake they're making. Yeah, that's really helpful. I, I sometimes find it helpful um, when trying to show students how you could argue for moral realism to, to like even just create concrete cases. So I think the one in class we talked about was Jim Crow racism. And I think what, what seems true to a lot of us is that Jim Crow racism was bad and it, it should not have happened. We can look back and, and criticize it and say it should not have happened. And what I hear you saying is that the nihilist might be able to say it was bad in some sense. They can agree that there were some things they didn't like about it, 
Um, it might have sowed seeds of chaos that undermines things we care about. But I guess the idea is that the moral realist has like an extra resource in their bag. Like they, they can actually say like, it actually doesn't matter if it undermined things you care about or not. It doesn't, doesn't matter what sort of unpleasant things it produced. Like even if we enjoyed Jim Crow racism, even if we approved of it, we could still say it was criticizable and it should have happened. And that, that seems to be what our, our intuition is that Jim Crow racism is like particularly criticizable, not just because it doesn't satisfy things we care about, but in this different, more authoritative sense. Does that uh, sound like a, a plausible road of trying to get people to see the intuitive nature of moral realism? Yeah, it does. I mean, the thing is, I guess the point of one point of defending realism is to say that these sorts of objections, moral objections to practices are not contingent on what we care about. They, these criticisms hold true, even if people are, you know, yelling in favor of genocide, of slavery, of systematic racial and ethnic oppression. Uh, of you know, we know from history that millions of people have gotten behind these kinds of views. But if you're a realist, that has no bearing at all on whether or not those practices are morally acceptable. The realist is in a position to say, no, no, they're not. And that they serve some people's interests and desires is not by itself determinative of whether or not those practices are morally appropriate. Great. You touched on this earlier, but some of the students were wondering whether moral realism requires a religious point of view in, in order to be defended. It doesn't. Uh, in fact, if you think that it's God say so that makes actions right or wrong, then that's not a form of realism in the first place. It, why? Because as I define realism, there are moral facts, the, the fundamental or basic or foundational facts that are that hold, but not in virtue of anyone's anyone's attitudes towards them. And by anyone, I'm I'm including God. So if you're a moral realist, you're not going to place God at the center of morality. There are arguments, of course, to defend defend this claim, uh, namely that God's not needed in order to vindicate a view of moral realism. I, <laughs> I'm reluctant to go into these arguments for time considerations. I could point readers to a chapter of my Fundamentals of Ethics book in which I make the case that it's it would actually be a mistake to think that actions are morally right or wrong because God loves them or commands them or prohibits them. Do you is that sort of shortcut acceptable here, Joel? I think it's acceptable. Yeah, and if students um, or other listeners to the podcast want to continue that conversation i can um yeah maybe try to do future episodes dedicated to thinking about god and morality but for now yeah why don't you tell us yeah some of the resources you recommend for thinking about the relationship between god and morality well the place i'd start because i wrote that book is <laughs> my book called the fundamentals of ethics i think it's chapter five that's devoted entirely to questions about how god is related to morality maybe it's chapter six but i think it's chapter five and there I go through four assumptions about how 
God and morality might be related. One is that we need God in order to be motivated to act rightly. The second is we need God in order for it to be rational for us to be willing to sacrifice in various contexts to obey morality. So if the, the thought is, if there's no God, then we're just dupes if we obey morality at the cost of our own interests. The third point is that we need that we need God in order to vindicate the existence of an objective morality. And that's the point that we were just discussing. And the last is that we need God in order to provide us with a source of wisdom, moral wisdom for leading our lives. I'm skeptical of all of those claims. Uh, and I think that many, I think that theists, those who believe in God, should also be skeptical of those claims as well. So my skepticism there doesn't derive from my views about whether God exists or not. I think that whether you're an atheist, agnostic, someone trying to make up their mind, or a theist, you should share this these sorts of skepticisms. But of course, you know, that yeah, I don't know, of course, but that's my view. <laughs> and I give I give uh, lots of reasons for for thinking that in that chapter of the book. And that book also contains suggestions for further reading. So that might be an, a good place to start. That's really helpful. Something you mentioned, I think it's going to be a good segue into a, another question that students raised. You mentioned that maybe if we don't believe in God, there's this worry that morality won't be worth it. We'll make all these sacrifices, these moral sacrifices. Morality can be demanding after all. And what's the payoff going to be? And this actually leads to um, a question that we discussed in class. I asked my students, um, suppose people just stopped believing in morality. They stopped believing that there were objective, authoritative moral facts. Would chaos in society ensue? And what I thought was interesting about that discussion is that I, I, I'm not certain, but probably around half of my students thought that if people stopped believing in, immor in morality, it would cause a lot of problems in society. And so I think the question I have uh, for you is, you know, what significance, if any, does our do our beliefs in morality have um, when it comes to preserving and protecting society, promoting flourishing? Um, do you, is it your view, Russ, that if people kind of just became moral nihilists, that that would create a lot of problems in the world and in society? I'm not sure to tell you the truth. I think the folks who are best suited to answer that question are psychologists and anthropologists and sociologists. Um, I don't feel that as a philosopher, I'm in a prediction from the armchair to, uh, I'm in a position from the armchair to make predictions about how people's behavior would change were they to shift from being believers of one kind of one stripe or another in morality to thinking, oh, it's all bunk. What I do want to say, though, is that uh, suppose that dire prediction were correct. That has no bearing whatever on the, tr the truth of moral nihilism or the falsity of moral nihilism. You can't, it's, it's an illegitimate criticism of moral nihilism to say, well, if we all came to believe that, disaster would ensue. That may, it may be the truth for all that. I mean, I don't, I don't think it is, of course, but there, there are lots of hard truths if we can't, if we all, if we all came to be atheists, lots of religious folks have predicted that 
chaos would ensue, society would crumble. If we all came to believe that we didn't have free will any longer. Similar, similarly, dire predictions have been forecast. But these sorts of these sorts of worries, I mean, it would be worrying if society were to crumble, but that has no bearing whatever on the truth of the claims. Sometimes there are hard truths, and what makes them hard is that suffering ensues from embracing them, but that doesn't make them any less true for all that. So um, I guess I'm reluctant to venture a prediction about whether, whether we just get on fine without attaching ourselves to morality or whether or not society would be fragmented or fractured in in one or more ways but i want to say that has no bearing on the truth of of moral realism or moral nihilism it does raise interesting questions though about like why we should care about morality um i mean i suppose suppose the social psychology research showed that when people become moral nihilists, they, they're just as inclined to do good things or what we call good things. Uh, they're just as inclined to preserve social unity and, and care about social flourishing as when they were not nihilists. I wonder if some students would think, well, then why should we care so much about morality? Why should we be obliged to follow it if it's not in some way connected to flourishing? And I, I wonder if your answer is going to be, well, it's in the nature of morality that it's authoritative and it issues these authoritative responsibilities, whatever it produces, whatever flourishing it produces. Yeah. Well, when I, I, I have a really long, complicated answer, and I'm going to try to put that into 20 seconds. <laughs> and that's the following. When you ask, why should I be moral, especially when morality sometimes calls on me to sacrifice my interests? The only plausible kind of answer that can be given is to provide a reason to comply with morality, even when it calls for self-sacrifice. I think there are reasons to comply with morality, and that's shown by the fact that when you violate moral norms, you're without excuse at least, you're properly, you're really subject to blame. You're blameworthy for, for that sort of action. And I think there is a conceptual connection between being blameworthy for an action and there being a reason not to perform it. So if it's the case that someone goes out and issues a racist slur, for instance, they're blameworthy for doing that. You know, unless in some unusual circumstance, they've got an excuse for doing that. But imagine more, more likely that they don't. In that case, they're blameworthy for that. And if they're blameworthy, it means that there was a reason for them not to have done that. And I think that, I think that argue, there are arguments available to show that those reasons are pretty strong. The last, I know I didn't make 20, my 20 second limit there, but let me just say one other thing, and that's the following. A lot of people approach this sort of question, why should I be moral when it can come at some sacrifice to me? And when they ask that question, they are very often animated by this thought. The only reasons I have for doing anything come from what I want or from my self-interest. And so if acting morally doesn't get me anything I want and it doesn't advance my self-interest, I don't have any reason to do it, but I deny the assumption, namely, that the only reasons we have are given by our own desires and our own interests. That, to me, is an unduly ego egoistic, self-interested, biased, really, way of approaching our lives. Why give ourselves 
all-consuming priority when it comes to what's rationally authoritative in our lives. I think I'm important, but I also think other people are important. If I have an opportunity to very easily rescue someone at almost no expense to myself, then there's reason for me to do it. Even if I don't, you know, even if I'm just a self-interested SOB, there's still reason for me to do it. I may be blind to that reason, but it doesn't mean that there's no reason at all. So I, I think these sorts of, uh, this, this sort of attitude or these sorts of questions stem from an unduly parochial, narrow, self-interested, and, and indeed a biased perspective on the source of reasons. I say biased because these sort this kind of attitude stems from this thought that I'm all important and nobody else is. If instead we recognize that you're important, whoever you are, but so is everybody else, then when we ask why it is that I should behave in a certain way, the interests of others present them, should present themselves as pressing on us. So, okay, enough said, I think. That was really fun to listen to, and I hope it gives uh, my students and listeners a lot to think about. And um, just to make everybody jealous, I, I took a class, a seminar, a grad seminar with Russ um, that covered some of his recent research on metaethics. And um, I've told you this before, Russ, but that was probably one of the funnest classes I've taken at the grad level. Awesome. Russ, here's, here, thank, you're welcome. Here's a fun question. Um, well, I think it's fun, and I think my students are curious to know. If you were not a moral realist and instead you were a nihilist, what kind of nihilist would you be? And just as a refresher for some of my students um, and for those who maybe weren't part of the class and are curious to know some of these categories, um, there have tended to be two approaches that moral nihilists take. Uh, fictionalists say, look, morality is a fiction. It's not true. There are no moral obligations. Nevertheless, uh, what are we going to do with moral discourse? Because we all use words like right, wrong, just, unjust, evil, wicked, righteous. And fictionalists think that it's actually prudent to keep some of this discourse around, to keep living as though morality were real, as though moral realism were true. And we can um, produce a lot of good in the world. We can secure a lot of things we care about if we behave like we are, like moral realism is true. So Richard Joyce talks about fictive immersion, just immerse yourself in the fiction, even though you don't believe it's true. On the other hand, abolitionists think that if you're a moral nihilist, you should just get rid of moral discourse. You don't need to pretend uh, that morality exists. In fact, uh, people like Richard Gardner argue that morality and belief in morality, moral discourse causes more problems in the world. And uh, we should just get rid of moral concepts and categories altogether. That might, I don't know what you think about that distinction, Russ, but um, that's how I've been explaining it to my students. And supposing that distinction is right, do you fall in either of those camps in the world where you happen to be a moral nihilist? In that very distant possible world, I would I would rather be an abolitionist. I don't want to, I, I think that the fictionalist attitude, if it's thoroughgoing, yeah, uh, not just in one context or another, but you're tr just trying to maintain the fiction all the time. In in your heart of hearts, you think it's all bunk, but among your friends, you'll keep talking talk. Uh, that doesn't seem like a very like a good way to go. I'd rather say, you know, if this is really not 
if, if if the attitude is really morality is bunk, then let's just jettison it and work on revamping our vocabulary uh, and rethinking the you know, retooling the structures of our thought so that we're no longer operating in terms of moral categories, but something else that we that we fashion, either something we've already got or something that we fashion anew once we've shifted our paradigms and gotten rid of morality as as a focal point. That's interesting. So Richard Joyce has this argument, as you know, that one of the advantages of moral discourse is that it can help with motivation that if I say someone, hey, it's in your interest to do X, Y, or Z, or you know, you care about X, Y, and Z, so why don't you go ahead and do it? They, yeah, they might be motivated to do it. But if you say something like, it's just to do X, Y, and Z, or it's wicked to do X, Y, and Z, then they have like, there's this like psychological effect where they're particularly motivated to do or refrain from doing X, Y, Z. And um, I wonder if you think that about moral discourse. Um, I know this is kind of going into some of the, the, the psychological or scientific research, but I wonder if you think moral discourse has a particularly motivationally powerful effect on people. I do, but I think that if you believe that motive, that morality is bunk, that you're that you are, in effect, kind of toying or manipulate toying with or manipulating people, who presumably these are people who still believe in in the legitimacy of the moral paradigm. If instead you're talking to a fellow nihilist, then why talk this way? Just <laughs> you know, just talk straight up about what it is that would be. Uh, what would reduce social harm or what would confer personal benefit to whomever you're you're speaking with. So if you're talking to a fellow nihilist, then forget the fiction. Let's just, you know, let's let's talk the truth and and uh and and proceed from there. If instead you're talking to someone who's still a believer in the moral paradigm, but you're not, it seems it strikes me that there's there's something a little bit manipulative about this. You're you're playing on their attitudes that you take to be completely ill-founded in order to advance something that is appealing to you. And that seems more like using someone than treating them as you know, people deserving of respect for their own sake. I wonder I wonder if the moral nihilist is going to say, well, I, I don't think anyone's deserving of respect for their own sake because I don't believe in desert. Yeah, maybe that's just yeah. I, maybe I imported a vestige of my <laughs> of my anti nihilism there in making that diagnosis, but I'm I'm not sure how much I can shed in trying to answer your counterfactual. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah that's great. Um, so just a few more questions here before we wrap up. Some of the students wanted to know how you respond to some of the objections against moral realism, and I think some of what you said earlier is going to be relevant here. But, you know, one objection is just that moral like morality as defined by the moral realists just seems a little bit bizarre, just a little bit strange, maybe a little spooky. There's this there are these obligations or these standards that have objective authoritative power over us. And I think for many maybe that just seems like too weird that the world that the world could contain such things. So I wonder how you would respond to students who feel like morality might be just a little bit too funky to be true. Yeah. Well, it might be. Yeah. 
but uh, the re I assume that the reason for thinking it is is because you, not you, Joel, but anyone who has this worry, uh, thinks that science is the paradigm of revealing the content of of objective reality, and we can't straightjacket morality into a scientific paradigm. Like there are some moral realists who think that. Morality, there is a moral science. Morality, it's not, it may not be as well developed as the science of physics or chemistry, but nevertheless, morality is more or less a science, uh, or ethics is more or less a science. And we've just got to uncover various empirical aspects of the world in order to reveal moral truths. I'm not one of those people, but I just want to emphasize that you can be a moral realist and still endorse that uh that kind of view but for me who i think morality is not a science ethics is, is not a science then the the problem becomes especially acute that said i think that uh um there's no good argument for the claim that all truths are scientific truths and there's no good argument for the claim that all justified beliefs are empirical beliefs by empirical i just mean for if your students aren't familiar with that um revealed by evidence acquirable through the senses alone um so i think that in fact there's a good argument for believing that it's not the case that science has the final word about every truth there is out there uh okay so there's that but it's all but given my understanding of morality it's not going to be the case that the fundamental moral principles at least are discoverable by scientific means so it's incumbent on me to offer what we'd call moral epistemology a theory of how it is that we come to gain moral knowledge if science if the scientific methods are not the way to do that so that's one difficulty conf uh, confronting my approach but as far as having, uh, you know, as far as there being objective truths that aren't scientific truths, I take it there are a lot of examples like that. I think that complex mathematical truths, for instance, are not, although they might be empirically discernible, they're not in the first instance uh, learned by means of uh, your sense evidence. I think that philosophical truths are not scientific truths. I don't think that you can offer a scientific proof of God's existence, for instance, or a scientific disproof of God's existence. I don't think we're going to prove free... I, I shouldn't talk about proof because that's too high a standard for, for our justified beliefs. But I think that in determining whether there's an objective morality, for instance, <laughs> that's a question that admits of an objectively correct answer. There, morality isn't objective because Russ Schaefer Landau thinks it is, or because a whole bunch of folks like me think it is. Uh, it just is. Now, I could be mistaken about that, of course. I'm fallible. But suppose that morality is as, you know, as the nihilist thinks of it, namely, there's nothing there. Well, then that's an objective truth about morality. Um, and these truths, what you know, whatever truth there is, is not discovered by science. I'm not a scientist. <laughs> I've been doing philosophy for 35 years. 
I and I haven't been doing science. So I think morality is very like philosophy. I think there are a lot of points of connection and uh, and and good analogies, solid analogies there. Philosophy is not a science. Ethics isn't a science. Philosophical truths, the deep ones, are not discovered in a scientific manner, and neither are the deep philosophical truths. So this gives me some hope to th in thinking that morality has um, good partners in innocence uh, in in philosophy, at least. We've got uh, we've got a paradigm in philosophical investigation and the content of philosophical claims where they're objective, even though they're not scientific. That's really helpful. Yeah, when I hear people raise this objection, this worry that morality is a little, it just seems too odd. Um, as another grad student put it to me, it's, it's the objection that morality is weird AF. And I, I sometimes think to myself, yeah, maybe maybe morality does seem a little bit weird, but um, I kind of think everything in the world is weird. Um, and we just sort of take things for granted. Um, I think that things happening at the quantum level, it's weird that yeah, this, yeah. this universe exists. It's weird. So um, maybe morality is weird in a special way, but for me, at least getting around that objection just kind of involves realizing that there are a lot of things in reality that seem weird, but they don't seem weird because they're so familiar. Um, something you said really caught my attention. You said that you could be wrong about moral realism. And this leads me to uh, the second to last question we'll discuss. One of the students asked the following, how are you okay with never knowing with absolute certainty that morality exists how can you base your entire belief system on something that is not confirmed to be 100 percent true that's an easy one joel ask me a hard question now, uh the reason it's easy is because i don't have absolute certainty about anything so i understand that it, it's very common among those who are who are starting out in philosophy to think that in order to have knowledge you need certainty uh, I, but almost no philosopher believes that because almost everyone believe every philosopher thinks that knowledge is possible, at least about some things. And yet certainty is impossible or very nearly impossible to have about just about everything. Uh, I'm one of those philosophers. I don't think I'm, I'm not certain about what my name is. I'm not certain that I'm married. Uh, but I'm very, very confident I am. <laughs> I'm not certain that I've got two kids, one named Max and one named Sophie, but I'm really, really confident that I do. And I'm not certain that I'm sitting in the chair in Madison, Wisconsin right now, but I, I know that I am. Uh, I think you're probably freaking out a lot of students. They're like, how are you not certain <laughs> that you're sitting in the chair? But um, well, I could be in the matrix. How's that? I can't I can't with certainty discount the possibility that I'm the subject of systematic hallucination or neurological manipulation. I could be in the matrix right now. No evidence that I that I put that I could put forward can decisively disqualify that possibility. And because that's so, I can't be certain about any of the claims I just uttered, even though um very, very confident that they're true because I'm very, very confident that I'm not in the matrix, but I can't be certain that I'm not. Right. And the, the response to that isn't, or, or the, the, the 
the consequence of that isn't, well, let's just be skeptics about everything. I take it your point is, even right. though I can't be certain, cl clearly, like I have really great evidence to think all of these things are true. And so certainty just isn't the the right standard for knowledge or or justified belief. Right. Um, what about, just a quick follow-up, what, what about someone who might say, great, that's true, but when it comes to morality, a lot is at stake because what we believe about what's right and wrong impacts so much of the world. So if I'm doing a mundane activity and I'm uncertain about the consequence, my evidence may not need to be that great. But if I'm doing something very important with a lot of consequence, a medical procedure, I need to be really confident that what I'm doing is is right. And I wonder if that's sort of the concern here. We need to be really confident that moral realism is true if we're going to base our lives off of morality. Well, I don't think uh, what we really need to be really confident about is that some things are morally correct and some things aren't. You can be, you can have that without having moral realism. I mean, there's a middle ground between moral realism and moral nihilism. Various forms of relativism, for instance, are available that would allow for the existence of moral facts, but would not make them as robustly objective as I want them to be, as a moral realist would want them to be. What we really need is uh, a high, I agree, when the stakes are high, you need a, 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 lot of a lot of warrant for the beliefs that are relevant in that, in that circumstance. But I think we have it. If I'm about to, you know, the stakes are really high if I'm about to kill somebody else. So I need, if I'm going to not do that, I need a really good degree of warranted confidence that doing such a thing would be wrong. I've got it. I think I've got it. You know, it's very, very clear. It's just suppose, oh, I don't like the way that guy looks, so I'm going to kill him. Well, that's wrong. And I think we've got a very high degree of justification for thinking that that's wrong. Thanks for that. All right. Our final question takes us a little bit away from these conversations about meta ethics and, and is really about how to engage in disagreement. So um, Russ, as, as I've gotten to know you over the past few years studying here at UW, I've, I've seen you engage in conversation and pursue disagreement in a way that's very charitable, very thoughtful, very virtuous. And so I think you're well-suited to answer this question. One of my students says, what is your advice on thoughtful discussions with those who have different moral views or opinions than you? Uh, my advice is to keep your, keep your mind open. Hopefully you've got a discussion partner who is equally open-minded and reasonable and well-intentioned. And we, the sorts of con quote conversations that attract a lot of attention in our culture these days don't satisfy those uh, those criteria. Rather, they're they're motivated, fractious, uh, argumentative exercises designed to score rhetorical points, bolster the allegiance of those who are already on your side, and crucially, not aimed at discovering the truth. These are really terrible models for how to conduct a conversation uh, among people. If you are interested in trying to discern the truth, the first thing you should do is recognize that you don't have all of it. And I certainly recognize that about myself, that none of us is morally omniscient, none of us is morally all-knowing or omniscient in any other respect for that matter. 
So we come to the world, we come to a conversation very limited. We're deeply imperfect. We're irrational in various ways that uh, many of which we don't, we're not aware of. We are very, we lack a huge amount of knowledge about so many things. So start with the recognition of, you, of your limitations and then say, nevertheless, truth is graspable. And uh, on a matter about which, you know, you basically two sorts of context. One is you feel confident about your view and you're talking about someone else who doesn't share your view. Maybe they feel confident about an opposing view. Maybe they're just trying to make up their mind. But in any event, if you feel confident about your view, what you should do is say, okay, look, this is why I think this is why I think it. And then offer your reasons. Yeah. One one excellent reason to take a philosophy course is because you get trained in how to present your re how to marshal and present the reasons uh on behalf of a of a position. And then take it from there. If instead you don't yet have a confident view about the matter at hand, then uh, you've got even more of an opportunity to learn from somebody else who might. <laughs> and uh, of course, they might be mistaken too, but in carefully listening to them and interpreting them as charitably as you can, you can then have before your mind a line of thinking that you can then assess for yourself. Do I find this plausible? I find it implausible. If I'm not really crazy about the conclusion, well, what about the reasons that have just been given for believing the conclusion? Are are they watertight? Do they actually, if true, support the conclusion? You know, this is basically philosophy trains you how to do that, and all you need to add to that is a little bit of very appropriate humility that we that we should all be bringing to our exchanges with uh, our fellow human beings. If you care about the truth, first thing you need to do is recognize that you don't have all of it. That's a really powerful quote. Russ, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Um, I know my students are gonna find this really fun and anyone else who's listening, thank you all so much for joining in and I'll see you next time. Thanks, Joe.